This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, Naturally Occurring Numbers. If you were to assemble random numbers from the world around you, say the lengths of rivers, the total numbers appearing in a novel, or the words spoken in a TV show, you would find something odd about these numbers, probably. The vast majority of them will start with a 1, 2, or 3, and a tiny minority of them will start with a 7, 8, or 9. That's right, the majority of multi-digit numbers that are found in the world will have a first digit that's low. This is called Benford's Law, and it doesn't make any sense. But the law is so predictable that it's observed just about everywhere and for just about everything. Despite how weird it is, it's a real thing. It's so real, in fact, that legal experts have and do use a lack of Benford's law to prove accounting fraud has occurred. For example, if a company has a bunch of financial records that don't follow the law, as in their records have a bunch of numbers that start with sixes, sevens, eights, or nines, lawyers and prosecutors can suggest that this is a sign of fraud. It raises more questions than it answers. How can the number of one thing, like trees, follow a similar pattern to the number of another thing, like revenue from a company? Well, we have no idea, but we're going to try to talk about it and figure it out. And welcome to episode 87 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. And this episode is going to come out a little later, which is fine. Chris had to commute with his car, and that threw us through a bit of a loop. Also, the YouTube thing is screwing us up, which is a story that is, if everything gets ironed out, we'll have to tell, tell another day. But did you make it to where you needed to go? I did. I drove from one location to another. Nice. I then stopped my vehicle exited and did errands and then i returned to my vehicle and thence to the original location and everything was fine everything was was really fine i did not enjoy it i didn't enjoy it at any phase it, oh. not getting in the car not driving the car not doing the errands returning right. home was nice but the actual process of returning home uh, once again did not enjoy that either i have come to the conclusion that it's just it's time for me to acknowledge that i just shouldn't do anything ever we're getting into fall now. I've been thinking nonstop about our fall rankings list and whether I have any yeah. updates to it. I think I do. Maybe oh, I do, maybe good. I don't. But we need to revisit that in any case. Really about gorgeous weather sure. today, and it made me just not want to do things. Yeah. Um, how do I say I miss COVID without the bad parts? <laughs> I think yeah. you just say, you know, I yearn for a time of a more... Simpler time, when we were more together. Yes, uh, with yeah. fewer frills and more simplicity, I guess. Um, I do have an update for you. If the uh, instant replay or, which, or whatever we like to call side quest, it's not a side quest. I do have a side quest for later, but um, I would like to say that today, the dating app for LGBTQ people, Grindr, announced that 45% of its staff have said goodbye because they were making them come back to the office. So they flipped them the bird and said no, thank you. And they left. They just you quit. You are kidding. So it's, it's time now for 
companies apparently to bring everybody back to the office. I will say we were really, really quick to hop on the train of you can be just as productive at home as you can at work. I think there is something to be said for that. There are fewer distractions. There's more time that people have to work theoretically where they're not, you know, skipping out early so they can beat traffic, whatever else. There are a lot of reasons for people to prefer working from home as opposed to going to the office. However, we'll get to this in a future episode, I'm sure, but there is some evidence to suggest that maybe we had too fast a start and that it actually oh, yeah. might not be the case that people are more productive working from home. And in fact, it could just be that people get lazy when they leave the office. And companies are trying to turn that around as well. There are also the real estate obligations. There's the yeah, need yeah, for yeah, yeah. So middle managers to have accountability. So let's, checks let's just assume there's a kumbaya thing going on. And like we want to get the best out of everyone. Because I've been related to you your whole life. And I would say that you're one of these people That's- that... Maybe <laughs> that's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe. that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. And I've not been related to you your whole life. Correct. You were wow. once a figment of my nightmares, and now here you are. <laughs> um, you're not a work from home guy. You could do it once or twice a week. You're an office guy. You're definitely an office guy. Yeah, I think that your yep. most protective productive self will be that way. And similar to like learning styles being fake, I do think that there is some leeway. Some people are going to take advantage of it. Some people aren't. I think that there's a way to treat people like individuals. Um, but there's also politics and stroking of egos and money involved in this too. Well, you know, it, it, to, first of all, to any future potential employers out there, I am a diligent, motivated self-starter sure. with unmatched work ethic. I agree. And to everybody else who lives in reality, I do think we need to acknowledge that there's a little bit of like, some people are genuinely built for working from home. Mm-hmm. Like my lovely partner, exceptional work ethic like her ability to avoid distractions is incredible sure and i would know that because i often am one of those distractions 100 percent. but i think this is a case where people are like think they're the exception to the rule like oh well you know it's, it's like the way people re- most re- people react to generalities like well i'm not like that so well i'm actually more productive at home because i can avoid distractions and blah, blah blah like no there are just more distractions at home there's the TV set and the bed and the neighbors and the construction and the video games and the internet and whatever else. There's all kinds of stuff you can do much more freely at home. And if nobody's there looking over your shoulder, then you can just go ahead and do it. But in the office, it's much less uh, possible to do that without getting caught or without getting reprimanded for it. So I think we need to we need to have a reality check here. It would yeah. be awesome if everybody was more productive working from home because that way everybody could continue working from home. But I'm starting to think that we might have been too early to make that call. Yeah, and you know there is underlying economic stuff and taxes and commuting. And, and, and right now there is, the workers are kind of winning the fight, which is a really, that's part of this too. I think big businesses are really like, you guys need to go back to the office so that we can be in charge. And workers are like, I don't know. So that's part of it. We will, we're going to address that uh, for sure down the road. Also, um, I read a Wall Street Journal article that was, uh, it was, I've read some really great Wall Street Journal and New Yorker articles this year about the workplace. Like, what happened to the yeah, power lunch? That's because, because you're so, so <laughs> the power lunch. There has never been a power lunch. I'm no. telling you this right now. Um, what happened to the power lunch? The, uh, Wall Street yeah. Journal is also a crack team investigating what happened to happy hours and what happened to Fridays. Well, I need to let them know that Friday still exists. And happy hour <laughs> is really any hour that you're happy. That'd I agree. If Jimmy Buffett, it's five o'clock somewhere. Okay. We are doing one of the weirdest things ever. And as our intro stated, um, we're going to explain Benford's law. And by explain it, I mean talk about it because it is, it doesn't make any damn 
It doesn't make any damn sense, Chris. So let's get into what we're talking about today. I found this on a TikTok. I did not go to math school. So I saw the TikTok and I was like, you have got to be shitting me. This cannot possibly be real. So this is a thing where some numbers are more popular in the world than others. There are more ones and twos than there are other numbers or numbers start with one and two more. What are we, what are we talking about here? Well, the first place that I saw Benford's Law was on a number file video. And if you haven't heard of number file, it's number and then P-H-I-L-E, as in like one who loves numbers. They have mm-hmm. a phenomenal YouTube channel. There's a whole family of YouTube channels of, of people out of, I think it's Nottingham University, some, some university in Britain. And they do these really, really interesting videos about just cool math stuff. They especially do cool videos on number theory. And if you're not familiar with number theory, it's basically the branch of mathematics that deals with numbers. And you might think, well, every branch of mathematics deals with numbers, Chris. Well, but for those of you who didn't, who did make it past the fifth grade, you know that that's not true. And number theory is a really interesting field. And this Benford's law is an example of like kind of just fun stuff that isn't really intuitive. It, you would expect mathematics to be kind of straightforward and predictable, but in a lot of cases, it's, it's just really not. And I'm going to quote directly here to explain what Benford's Law is. I'm going to quote from the site, Statistics by Jim. Tagline is Making Statistics Intuitive. And this website provides as good a, a, of an explanation of this as I was able to find in doing research here. Benford's Law describes the relative frequency distribution for leading digits in numbers of data sets. Leading digits with smaller values occur more frequently than larger values. The law states that approximately 30% of numbers that start with one, while less than 5% start with nine. So there's this distribution of, the, of leading digits. And so what to, to get a little bit farther into this, Nick, a leading digit is the first digit in a, the string of numbers. So mm-hmm. like in the year of this country's founding, 1776. Yes. The year of your One birth. is the leading digit. That's 1991. right. 1991. One. One is and the here we have digit. begun the shit show. Right. And so if you were if you were to ask somebody, if you, you know, if you were to roll the dice, roll a 10-sided die, and char out the number of times that you encounter each individual digit from one to nine, you would well, I so okay, let me back up. If you were yeah. to roll a nine-sided die, because zero is a placeholder, you can't have zero as a leading digit, it's just not there. You don't express that number. Sure. So if you were to roll a nine-sided die, which right. I don't think that exists, but if you were to roll a nine-sided die with an equal possibility of landing on numbers one through nine, yep. you would expect that about 11.1% of the time, or one out of every nine times, you would encounter each individual digit. And if you were to stack those up over iterations, like thousands or millions or billions of iterations, you'd expect to see a bar chart that looks basically like a flat comb, where each bin, each individual digit has roughly the same number. And for statistics, for a completely random die, that's true. That's the case. You're, you're going to get that even distribution. But here's the crazy thing. Benford's law tells us that in the real world, when you're looking at actual data sets, and that's everything from like the lengths of rivers to the height of people to average GDP to physical quantities, all across the observable universe that distribution completely fundamentally changes. It goes from a flat histograph where every bin has the same problem, is, is exactly the same degree of full, to one that shows roughly exponential decay and digits that are smaller, so like the ones and twos, they appear far, 
far more often. In fact, like multiples more often than the larger digits. And the larger a digit is, the less frequently it appears as the leading figure in a given number. Okay, so what you're saying is, if we encounter a number in, in the world, it is 50%-ish chance that that number is a one or a two. The first integer of the number will start, the number will start with a one or a two. Like, there's a 50% chance. And there are nine integers, one through nine. Well, it's, it's, it's close to 50%, yeah. Here, in, in fact, uh, according to, you know, the, the, the chart on the Wikipedia page, which, which is accurate in this case, guys, I've cross-referenced it a bunch of times. There's an exact mm -hmm. distribution for this. The chances of getting a one in the leading digit are thirty percent, fully like like almost fully a third. Yeah, the chances of getting a two in the leading digit are somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent. It looks like about seventeen percent yeah. on this. So yeah, I mean you're looking at over forty five percent, close to fifty percent of all first digits of all numbers in all data sets are one or two, mm -hmm. and it's it's crazy. I mean fewer than five percent of leading digits are nines. Yes, and also and, eights. And it's amazing. And sevens, yeah, eights, five percent, sevens, just over five percent. It's it's crazy to me, and you know the, the 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 remarkable thing about this is that it shows that there. First of all, it shows there's a little bit of mystery still left yeah. in the observable universe and and the mathematics that describe the universe. But it also shows you that statistical measurements are not as directly straightforward as you think. I mean, it's there is a law, and you're you are able to observe that law. I mean, that's why it's called Benford's law, not like Benford's wild guesswork. But it's still not, you know, it's not a direct correlation with what you might expect for random data sets. Yeah. And so <laughs> the weirdest thing about this to me is, is like you said, is, is math, was it invented or was it discovered? Because this, this randomly occurring thing, when I saw this, and I, I have dabbled with number theory, TikToks and things, and I, we're going to go on a side quest to do 3x plus one, which is my favorite um, math shit show of all time. I've watched many videos on it. I... I I think that the, the fact that there's things out there that are like are like this, that it makes it seem like, well, there's maybe some, and I've heard this theorized recently when we talk about UFOs and aliens and things, that is there paranormal activity or is there more to physics that we really don't understand? You're like, well, how can we not know everything? We've talked on this show, like we pretty much know everything. And then now we go back to counting, literally counting the beginning of science, like the the bare minimum of science, like one, two, three, and like, oh, well, actually, there's this thing. We have no idea what the hell is going on. That, to me, is the best part about this. The, the mystery of it is the craziest thing. We're like, well, um, and people have tried to prove it and look into it. They're like, we have no idea. Essentially, people have been like, yeah, I don't know. It's a law. It is what it is. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is the craziest thing. And, you know, Scientific American wrote a really, really interesting article about this. We're yes. going gonna to link this because we, we, we can't recommend enough reading this, but we're, we're going to discuss it a little bit. And, you know, they, they say, like, like I've mentioned, this, this law of leading digits, it persists across the observable world. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the example Scientific American lists here, country populations, river lengths, mountain heights, death rates, stock prices, Literally, like the, numbers, like just the collection numbers. of numbers. Listen, the collection of numbers that you find in a typical issue of Scientific American. If you look at all the numbers that appear in that magazine, then they're going to start to follow the Benford's law, where the leading digit is going to be one or two, almost ten times as often as they're going to be nine. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's not just that they follow this this. You know, it's not just that they're more, far more common. 
and that you can you know kind of guess that it's going to be a one or a two. It's that the leading digits follow a very precise and remarkably consistent pattern that is the most fascinating thing to me. Yeah, let's get into some applications um, for it a little bit later, including where it exists in, in pop culture and what it can be used for. I want to go back to the top of the Wikipedia article, which is to say, where, how did this happen? When did this, when was, because it's not Benford, it's Benford's, it's like Newcomb Benford's law. This was something that's kind of recently been observed. And it makes me think that, man, I was just born in the wrong century. I really could have done some great science 100, 200, 300 years ago. But um, now I, it's yeah, just, just like I could work from home and not be distracted. How can you see a map of South America and Africa, like all of us as kids and be like, obviously they were touching. Like they fit in like a glove. Duh. Like I could have observed that. That would have been easy. Well, yeah, but how, how long do you think it took to figure out what those maps look like? Have you seen maps from even like a hundred years ago? Yeah, of course. And I am very woke. I am woke. No, on, no. Oh, no, yeah. No, we're you know not exactly talking about right, that right, episode. Right. No, we're not talking about that clip from the West Wing. We are. That's it. I'm putting the kibosh on it right now. The conjecture map is wrong. <laughs> It's for sailors. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's 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 not wrong. It's not wrong. I'm gonna I'm I'm you're you're hearing it right now. Benford's law is an accurate description of the distribution of numbers. Maps, however, require interpretation. You you can't just say, oh, this projection is wrong and call it good. No. Th there's an old engineering maxim. I've said it on this show once and I'll say it again. All models are wrong. All maps are models. All models are wrong. But some are useful. <laughs> but some okay. You're yes, it doesn't have to of, be exactly you perfect. Strike one you could, as a model. You, you honestly, you're you're a model. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I I want to be used. Benford's law I started. Be right. I want to be used. Chris, back to topic, please. Jesus, Benford's law <laughs> goes back Sorry. to 1881. You know, you sometimes when a Canadian discovered it, Chris, I could have done it. That Canadian discovered, like what, just wandering around in the. Yukon or what? Yeah, kind of. Uh, he tested data from 20 different domains, um, and we're looking at the surface areas of 335 rivers. So the rivers thing is not just a cool example that the Scientific America cited. This this Newcomb Benford guy was wandering around. He's like, let's just look at data sets for rivers. And he started to look at the numbers, and it kind of freaked him out. Like, Uh-oh. For the record, I do want to say that Newcomb and Benford are two different guys. It so wasn't one guy. Yeah, let's, yeah. Simon Newcomb Simon was Newcomb, an yes. astronomer. From 1881, the and the way that the, the way that he the way that he discovered this was looking up logarithm tables. So, so you talk about mathematics discovered or invented, whatever. Now, I mean, we have calculators; they're ubiquitous. They've been ubiquitous for years. So, students who are doing math that requires the use of logarithms to describe like exponential growth or decay, they have to you know you basically just type in a calculator and figure out what's the logarithm of three yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But that wasn't always the case. Calculators and digital technology wasn't in the palm of everyone's hand in the late 19th century. So what they had instead for you know for hundreds of years, they had what were called lookup tables. And you can just go to a table that's just somebody says, hey, here's the logarithm of every number from 1 to 100 or whatever. And then it, depending on how big or inclusive the table is, it has more numbers. Well, Simon Newcomb was looking at logarithm tables and... They begin with one and they go up in sequential order. And when he was going through this lookup table, I mean, obviously you're going to have to turn pages because it's just a compilation of numbers. And when he was looking through, he noticed that the early pages in those books 
were really worn and they were really used. It's kind of like, you know, when you pick up a book at a, at a used bookstore, or like in a library, the first few pages that people are flipping through to kind of get an idea of what's what, those are going to have a lot more wear and tear than the pages in the back because people get tired of reading after 30 pages or sure. two sessions. Yeah. They put the book down and they never use it again. But for a logarithm table, I mean, if you're a student, you need to know math and it kind of does, you'd think, well, it doesn't really matter what the number is that you're looking up. What matters is that it's there in the table. So he, he noticed that the, the the later pages were really clean, really pristine, and the early pages were grubby and worn. He thought, well, that's that's really kind of kind of strange. And then he figured out that smaller leading digits would, that would have appeared earlier in the logarithm table, they were more common in natural data sets. So he thought, oh, yeah, well, people need to use these more because they just exist more frequently in the types of problem sets that these students are trying to solve. Yeah. And, and then later on, in 1838. So 1938. 1938. We're going sorry, forward in time. Yeah. Yep. yeah, my bad. Mm. This was <laughs> almost 50 years later. Correct. Uh, actually, a little more than 50 years later. This is Ben Frank. Yes, now we're Frank Benford, who is a different person than Simon Newcomb, lived in a different time and place. He made the same observation, and he popularized the law, compiling more than 20,000 data points to show, no, really, this is a numerical artifact of observable yeah, data so in the real world. Here are the things that this Benford guy collected. It was He just collected numbers of things that exist, like just random stuff, just to prove a point, right? We have like what 3,200 U.S. populations, Something, so 104, like, like, 3,200 U.S. populations. So I'm assuming like cities and counties and, and whatever. 335 okay, gotcha. rivers, the surface area. 104 physical constants, which I'm assuming is just stuff. Yeah, so physical that. constant would be a number like uh, like the universal gas constant, for example. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, like yeah, PV yeah. equals NRT. Well, the R in that would be like a physical constant. Right. Or there are also dimensionless numbers like uh, uh, the uh, Reynolds number that shows the line between turbulent and laminar flow. Uh, okay. Shout out to the engineers out there that know what I'm talking about. But there's just like numbers that exist that, inter yeah, that, that, that we've explain the relationship between physical quantities. Sure. Yeah. Um, 1,800 molecular weights, 5,000 entries from a mathematical handbook, 308 numbers that were in an issue of Reader's Digest, literally reading Reader's Digest, like what numbers are in this book, which is interesting because that's a human element now. Yeah, mathematical we're not, we're not mathematical handbooks are like they're teaching stuff. U.S. populations is a naturally occurring thing, kind of. Uh, physical constants have been discovered, as we've discussed. But Reader's Digest was written and edited by writers and editors. They don't know or probably care about any of this. The street addresses of the first 340 persons listed in the American Men of Science and more than 400 death rates, all of this. The numbers, they all, all the numbers he added up to were 20,000 numbers. And yeah, the law was essentially exactly right, observed by Simon Newcomb, and proven, which is a big deal. That word is, a, is not thrown around lightly in the math community by Ted Hill some 60 years later, and now it is named Benford's Law. So he literally just collected numbers that he could think of. Like, what if we do rivers? What if we do the, the grains of sand in this brick? Uh, whatever, just random shit. And uh, yeah, the law held up incredibly predictably consistent. Just bananas. The data sets followed Benford's law and also the total 20,000 numbers followed Benford's law, which is banana lands. That's it, it, crazy. It, it really is crazy. And so you think, you, you start to think like, all right, with the with the breadth of kind of topic area or or I guess type of quantity that you're looking at here, there has to be some kind of explanation as to why 
all of these disparate data sets are seemingly subject to this mathematical law with so much precision. I mean, it, it really is just a, a, a beautiful little curve when you plot the distribution. So why is it that all of these quantities behave this way? And, and so you start to think about like, all right, what's the, what's the nature of counting? Well, if we're, we're talking about numerical systems that people use. I mean, if, if math was, whether math was discovered or invented, it doesn't matter what matters is we use math to kind of explain the world that we're in, to try to understand it, to try to make our way in it. And counting is a critical part of that. So you think of the nature of counting. Nick, you and I are subject to what I think is the dumbest tyranny of ideas in human history. We use the base 10 counting system, oh, which is just so... God, if I can't have my math thing, so you can't silly. have your base 10 thing. No, it's directly relevant. Benford's Law is about math. To this it's about episode, counting. it's relevant, Yes. Yes. So to this episode, I'm going to explain. To everyone so the else, base no. 10, So the base 10 counting system, okay. as you know, is... 10, 20, 30, 40, base, 50. Yeah. Right. So we said, at the, we said earlier on that zero is like a placeholder digit. So it's like every time you get to the end of a row of a designated length, you just tack a zero on and you start another row. And then once you reach the same number of rows that you decided is like fine for the length of a row, then you start another larger row. And the zero allows you to determine where you are and it's a way to like figure out the scale that you're looking at are you looking at tens of things or are you looking at billions of things and the way that you measure that is a number of zeros the base 10 counting system is just one of an infinite number of counting systems wherein the the unit is expressed by 10 individual shapes and then a zero or i guess nine individual shapes yeah. and then a zero yeah. and that those individual shapes mark out the, the the base unit of that counting set. So you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. All right, that 10 is the first zero. That signals we're now ready to start another counting unit. A great way to think about this, if I can interrupt, Chris, is to think about when people do the technicality of um, you, don't, you were never zero years old or 2001 is actually the first year of the 21st century, which is an annoying roll your eyes kind of thing, but that's true because the 2000 is just the end of the previous base 10 set times 200 or whatever. Yeah, precisely. And, and it's why like, like computer engineers start counting with zero because, all right, from the beginning to the end of the first count, you, that's in the first count. So you go yeah. from zero to one to two, et cetera. Right, zero so is not place, nothing. It is equal to no things, but it is not nothing. It is its own integer. Profound. I, you know, I think that's worth pausing the podcast for a second to contemplate. <sighs> okay, now that you've unpaused. Okay. When you, when you consider like different counting systems, like there are other ways to, to do this and still use the figure one zero. Uh, in fact, the simplest way to do counting with the simplest system is binary. It's zero and one. Yeah. And, you know, you can use that for all sorts of things like yes or no, on or off. And that's why like a lot of computer language is written in binaries because in the electrical circuit, you basically have like an on off I, choice to make it like different decision trees throughout the circuit. And so if it's on, it's a one. If it's off, it's a zero. Uh, and then once you get from zero to one, now well, now that's the designated unit. So now you got to start again. So then the next number in the binary sequence is zero, one. Well, then you go to 10. And then you can add right. one to that 10 because you're within a new unit. Well, okay, but then you've hit 11 and now you got to start over again. So you got to add a second zero. So now you're at 100. And then you go to 101 and then 110, and then 111, and then now you got to add another zero because you're at the end of that block, and you, add a, you go to 1,000. And that's, this, that's the smallest possible version of that. So you might be thinking, well, you know, the fact that we have this base 10 system 
maybe maybe the 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 size of the unit of counting that we're doing gives more room to lead lower leading digits. Maybe there's some mathematical fact about the base size that lends itself to this kind of artifact of counting. And you know, if you think about like there's there there were other counting systems that were in use throughout history. And I talk about the Dozenal system all the time. It's a base 12. And the way that you would do that by going on beyond 10 is, well, you would just invent two new symbols to fill in the spaces between nine and what the next 10 would be. So you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, symbol A, symbol B, and then you hit 10. And that's a base 12 front the, the the way that a 10 would describe that is a 12 and there, there, there there's all kinds of of interesting ways to to manipulate that system and actually the uh it was it the sumerians or the the uh, babylonians mm-hmm. the babylonians used a base 60 counting system and the way they did that was they kind of like used multiplication and counting at the same time so if you if you take look at your hand you think well there's 10 yep. fingers no we can do this on our fingers if you count the number of spaces between your knuckles on each finger you got three on each finger you got the fingertip the middle part and then the part closest to the palm and then you do that for each of your four fingers that you're holding up that's 12 counts right there and then what the babylonians would do is they would go through that that progression one time and then they would raise a thumb and then would do it again and raise a finger and again and again and again they got five fingers on the other hand they got 12 pads on this hand Mm -hmm. so that's five sets of 12 which is a base 60 and they had a base 60 counting system. And Nick, the reason they did that mm-hmm. was because that was the first kind of major civilization that started storing grain and mm-hmm. storing food. And it was the first one to do like real me- like accounting at scale. And so it was way easier to count large quantities by referring to things that are 60 units in size as opposed to doing with like individual units or doing it with like 10 units. It was just more convenient because they were dealing with large quantities. And so you think... Maybe this base counting size is the limiting factor on this. And we change the base to something else like a 60 or if we like pick a random number for the base size, maybe that'll change it. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what the base unit of counting is. Yeah. Benford's law still applies. It still predicts the distribution of first digits in other bases and those di- those distributions are still subject to Benford's law. It's the craziest thing. It is. The <laughs> first of all, that's called duodecimal and Chris can take you on a rabbit hole that will last hours on the base 12 stuff and we're going to veto that on this on this podcast. Join, join me player 3. <laughs> he base is, 12 baby. He's all in on base 12. But that is absolutely absurd that it continues to exist to the point and this is let's get into some practical uses actually you know before we get into practical uses and how this works i want to go on two side quests quick side quest um is 3x plus one have i told you about 3x plus one we've talked about 3x plus one in person but i don't think we discussed it on the show 3x plus one is my favorite math problem it has never been proven as and i don't know exactly what they mean by proven it's like an observable numerical game that always ends the same way no matter what time is a flat circle literally in this case so i don't know what proving it means that it will be like this infinitely but the way that it works is you can start with any number pick a number one between infinity and you play by two rules if the number you pick is even you divide it in half and then you keep dividing it in half if the number is odd you multiply it and add one you multiply it by three and add one right so the situation with with this law is that no matter what you do under any circumstances it will always end the exact same way and that way is four two one four two one four 
divided by 2 is 2, divided by 2 is 1, multiplied, add 1. So it converges to the same Every sequence. time, yep. And so people have been freaking out about this, and in the 50s, the math, this one mathematician guy said, mathematics is not yet aged enough for such questions. And other <laughs> advisors have told people, don't go into this, have a career, and then circle back when you have tenure. Like that kind of stuff. Like don't look into this problem. And it's, it's a fun deep dive, and that's a little side quest. You can figure it out. Side quest number two is Chris and I are playing fantasy football, and this is not a sports-related side quest. This is a game theory related side quest. He has never played in a fantasy football league that has FAB. I don't know what the acronym stands for. It's fan, It's like free agent budget or something. So if you play... That sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. So on when football NFL football games are played on Sunday and you have your fake team with your fake running back and your fake quarterback and they play and they don't do well and you're like, I hate this fake running back. I want a new fake running back. I'm going to go select from the pool of players who are not on any teams right now. I'm going to go find one. Now, the easiest way to play fantasy football is for the worst player in the league to have first choice or for the person who picked last in the draft to have first choice. That's how they do it in in real life. But from a game theory standpoint, that is how do you say bullshit? So fantasy football players invented a game theoretical solution called FAB, which is each player is allocated 100 fake dollars in their fake league for their fake players. And you have to bid how much money you think that fake player will be worth from the pool of unselected players. So if you are on a guy that you want and you think no one else wants them, you can theoretically bid $1 and have $99 remaining for the season. However, if you think that there could be multiple people bidding for this person, you have to then play the game of how much will they think that I think that they think that this guy is worth. So we had a bid. There were a couple players this week. Only one player got two bids, and the winning bid was $42, which meant that Chris L., my brother-in-law, was like, everyone's going to want this guy. I can't do 90, because there have been times in, in previous seasons where people will be like, I'm 95 bucks. This guy, I totally missed on this guy. Like Amon Ross St. Brown, for example, one of our favorite players, he was a 90s guy. Like, pay 90 bucks to get this guy if he's available. So I had to explain that to you because you've never used Fab. That's how it works. You well, want a big three plays. What's yeah. the connection to the topic again? I forget. It's just a game theory side quest, just numbers. No. Cool. All, right. All right. Let's go back to Ben Law. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out. Oh, is it time? It's time Sorry. to do practical uses of Ben Law. Let's talk about the fact that this law is so predictable, so consistent, and such a law that it is used to find criminal activity. Yeah, this isn't this isn't like uh, Benford's fun little fact or Benford's mathematical guesswork. This is such a, an important part of the number theory landscape that it has weight in the court of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm I, I'm telling you, it, it's been used in real actual legal cases to determine that people are uh, guilty of committing fraud. So Scientific American once again giving us some. Uh, some examples here financial advisor wesley rhodes was convicted of defrauding investors when the court argument by the prosecution said that his documents don't have the expected distribution of leading digits in them in other words they were likely fabricated so we get back to the very beginning of explaining benford's law if you had a random number generator that would just spit out random numbers if you're just trying to fabricate a data set there are a couple of different factors that you could look for you remember the other one with the uh, with the distribution of numbers, where it's like a box. 
Yeah, it looks like a box instead of like the normal yeah. histogram yeah, distribution. Yeah. yeah, so that's one possibility. The other one, or well, not the other one, another possibility is that if you're a forensic scientist and you're looking at the data set trying to determine if there's financial uh, misdoing or misdeeds here, then you can look for Benford's Law. Just check out the leading digit of every single number that appears in the data set. And if they don't accord with Benford's Law, you're probably looking at a crock of shit. Especially when it when it deals with with data sets that don't necessarily have like an outside force placed upon them. So, so when you're looking at financial data, there's no reason really to to think like, okay, well, yeah, all these data set or all these data are gonna drift toward a, a specific given number, right? And you know, Nick, I, I guess this this might be a good time to mention like, not all data sets obey Benford's law. No, if you look at the average height of adult men in America, fives, you're gonna get a lot of fives. You're gonna get a lot of sixes. You're gonna get a handful of sevens, maybe an eight or two. You might get some fours. You might get a couple of three. I don't know, but you're not gonna get a ton of ones and twos. Uh, in fact, you almost get none. So not all data sets apply to Benford's law. Like there are some examples, but I will say that in that case, you know, the unit has to do with that. You mm-hmm. will get a lot of ones if you switch the unit from feet to meters. A lot of people are one point some meters tall. Several people are two point some meters tall. So there are ways to kind of to kind of mess with that. So it's not like oh, this doesn't follow Benford's law, as in. You know, there are a ton of like eights as the leading figure because there are, this is like an octahedron enthusiast group. No, 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 no. The distribution still matters. The distribution is still going to show you uh, consistency there. And it's enough that you can point to like financial records and say this is evidence of fraud because these leading digits look fabricated. They don't look like a normal... I say normal. They don't look like a regular old yeah. data set that you would expect to find in the wild. It's interesting because the Journal of Accountancy has a number of Benford. This is such a big deal to accountants that there are a number of articles throughout multiple years um, and on Benford's Law, one of which is about fraud. And they talk about histograms that look a little odd. And they also talk about histograms that look like they should be random. And this is the funniest thing. <clears throat> It is more likely that a person producing numbers mentally would tend to repeat certain numbers and charting the frequency of the resulting leading digits might reveal those patterns. Um, so what they're saying is like, if you were fabricating numbers on a ledger by yourself, you might naturally have your own patterns. This is hilarious to me and also kind of interesting. For example, a person may subconsciously overuse the digits one, three, and four to produce false data and underuse six and eight because of... Where they are Benford's on the keyboard. <laughs> Where they are on the keyboard, really? Yeah, that's what this says of this journal of accountancy. Uh, six like, is, is the hardest one to do to to touch on the uh, the row of key. If you, if yeah. you use your correct Herzog technique, which I yes. always do. Correct. But on the number pad, wow. we think that everything on the left-hand side, Chris, which would be what? One, four, and seven. Some of wow. our favorite digits. So you might you accidentally follow Benford's law, but then there would be too many sevens. And too many fours. That is a really, really good point. Well, and it's it's also like uh, I, I remember seeing this, and and now that we, I I didn't look this up because I didn't think about it until just now. Sure, but I, I've seen before. <laughs> like if you look at the the frequency of two digit numbers that appear in like Reddit usernames, mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of like O ones and a lot of like teens because I don't know Reddit came to be in two thousand eleven or whenever, right? And so a lot of people like put their 
graduation year or the year of their anniversary or whatever. For whatever reason, they put those those years there. Uh, you also see a lot of like ninety sums and eighty somethings because maybe people put their birth year and there are birth a lot year, of yeah, like yeah, yeah. twenty, thirty, forty year olds on Reddit. And there's a huge hot spot in this chart if you plot out a grid of like the numbers one to a ninety zero one to ninety nine. There's a huge hotspot on one number right in the middle. Can you guess what that number is? Uh, I'm going to guess it's, it's got to be seven. No, 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 no. no. One, there's one two-digit number oh. that stands out among these Ooh. distributions. Ooh, okay. So and it's, it's, it's in the number of it, and we're talking about the Benford's Law histogram. Yeah, so there there are like systematic biases sure, 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 sure. in this particular Benford's law for two digit numbers only for only yeah. two digit numbers in reddit.com usernames. So think are there any outside forces that might act on the people who are creating Reddit usernames that would drive them toward a given set of numbers? Oh, wow, that's crazy. I, my guess off the top of my head would be like, ah, but 23 doesn't obey Benford's law. My guess was going to be either 23 or 77. Make it 69. Oh. The number that appears most often in reddit.com usernames is 69. Uh, God. It should be that quite obvious. Right I thought I was thinking like Michael Jordan is sevens. I thought, no, sevens. no, no. It's, no, it's, it's, it's wow. far simpler than that. It's 69. So when you look at nice. specific cases like that with a, with a certain outside bias, like, the, like the, the, the adult male height example, I mean, we use feet to measure height in America. Most people are between four and six feet tall or five and six feet tall for men. It's going to show up different than other data sets are. It's not going to necessarily obey out, but that's because there is a specific mathematical bias that exists. And in this case, the mathematical bias is the most, the the funniest juvenile joke of all time. It is. Um, I don't know why it's so funny, but it really is. Also, Shouts to Benford's Law for being used in Netflix for uh, detecting fraud in the Netflix series Ozark. It was used. Yes. Yeah, so I, I kind of I've been thinking about something because we talk about how it's naturally occurring. Is it possible that numbers are what they are, but our ability to assign numbers value in the real world is where the bias lands? Because if people, if we just assume a unit is a unit, right, an inch, a centimeter, a foot or whatever, and people exist where they exist, then that falling outside of Bensford's law doesn't mean to me that, oh, this is a, a salmon swimming upstream. It kind of points to the fact that like perhaps our assignment of three-dimensional real-world value to numbers is a little weird. So I, I also want to say that one of the most interesting things to me is when multiple cultures have very similar things happening at the same time. Now, not to go down rabbit holes, but if you wanted to go down rabbit holes and we all have our weird stuff and get off my ass. Um, I think that it is fascinating that uh, every, you know what? I can't even say this because you're just so ready to be such a douche about this. Every culture in the world has imagery. Ancient cultures have imagery of dragons, mermaids, and huge fish. And those things are, could be mythological, of course, probably, but also maybe not. And Chris, to bring it back around to things that are true, it appears according to the scientific American, that Mesopotamians and Mayans invented the zero independently of one another within seven years of each other. You know that's some like ancient proto Marco Polo guy, Joe Rogan, walking around. He's like, yeah, it's like you, you, like you know, 
is Joe Rogan. He's like, he's like I, f- I found the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, it's yeah. a circle. And I was like, oh, my God, what does that mean? <laughs> it's weird because they have a specific date. They Or not a specific date, calendar date. But it was, according to Scientific American, the Babylonians got their, or Babylonians, Mesopotamians got their first in 3 BC. And then in 4 AD, the Mayans got there, which is oddly specific, but not Benford's law. So maybe I think that because it's, there's no ones. <laughs> yeah, that must be, that must, must be, be true. Like when did each civilization discover zero? Well you, well, you know, you talk about assigning value to numbers. It really is amazing. Like what the, the level of abstraction that you have to go to, you know, I'm, I'm reading this book about like the, the making of modernity and there's a reason to believe like, well, you know, the, the 16th century, like the start of the 1500s, that's when like the modern world really came to be, you know, there's, the Enlightenment and the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and all this kind of stuff. And the world we live in today is largely a product of, of stuff that began 500 years ago. Sure. It's not that people in the first 1,500 years of the of, of the Anno Domini, it's not like they were dumb. It's not like they didn't know any, any better. Yeah. It's not like they were, weren't encouraged to learn. By the way, if you read Swerve, understand that it's horse hockey, and I'd love to talk to you about it. But <laughs> the point is that it, it, you know, knowledge, for whatever reason, is not as well preserved from that period it, it's it, it's just there's a darth of it compared to what exists in the enlightenment period and in the in the reformation and, and following one of the themes that comes up in this book all the time there are several of them civilization or the western civilization tends toward individualism it tends towards self-consciousness like awareness of the self it tends towards primitivism people want to do away with the new fangled fashions and go back to the old ways no matter where they are in history people always seem to be doing that in the west and one of the other themes that pops up over and over again, and really kind of for the first-ish time in the 1500s, is abstraction. Like the degree to which abstraction became a leading component in Ooh. thought, in science or natural philosophy, in artistic expression, in you know visual arts, music, literature of all kinds. The, the, the degree to which ab- abstraction became a key component in thought really can't be overstated for that period. And so when you think about numbers, I mean, numbers are just abstractions. They're just like symbolic representations of some other physical quantity or concept. And math gets really hard because it's hard to keep track of all those abstractions just like in the brain. I mean, they're, they're really difficult to manage. And this is Nick, this is the most amazing thing that really drives home this point about what it means to like count stuff. I remember a buddy of mine years ago telling me about this like no you got to check this out there are whole peoples who don't use numbers to count like they don't they don't keep track of individual units of stuff and so i just looked this up because yeah. I, I couldn't remember what it was and and i found another scientific american article if you mm. can believe this no. this is from 2008 they wrote this piece called people who don't use numbers uh, and they recorded it and just Phenomenally interesting stuff by uh, Karen Hopkin and Mel F. Lewis. They did this report on the Paraha people of the Amazon who don't seem to use words for individual numbers. And I, I remember seeing, you know, they talk about this MIT team that in 2004 report, they, they're doing an anthropological study of the Paraha people. Right. It said they seem to have terms that describe one, two, and many huh so they said they asked the tribe members to like count objects so they would count like like a handful of sticks or fish hooks or batteries or whatever as they like place them on the ground like how many things are here and they said that the word previously used that that the researchers 
had heard the the Paraha people use for like two objects. Mm -hmm. They would use it for like larger quantities for like three, four, five, six objects. They would use the word one for anything that was like less than some quantity. And so it doesn't, it's, it's that the words don't stand for individual numbers. They're the type of abstraction that the Paraha people are doing to relate this word, this expression to the quantity that they're observing is it, it, it's of a different kind than the ones that, the Western mind or the Mesopotamian mind or the, the Arabic mind or whatever, the, it, it's different from the type of counting system that everybody is familiar with today. And, you know, these are, these are, this is still like a native people. I mean, the Paraha people still exist. They still live in the Amazon. And, and uh, so it's to like, be clear, and like, I don't want to say there's no preventive or developing nation part of this. Like you can live in the Amazon. So like, I mean, they're, it's, it's not that the world around them has evolved and they're ancient. They are surviving in some of the harshest places to live on planet Earth. So they're doing just fine. If you ask me, it's like, and I, I've talked about this before with um, Richard Dawkins and his idea that ideas are genetic in some way. I think that the idea of memes does hold some water and that we can't go back. Like it's genetic now. Like we will never not be able to think like that because we think like this or it will take many generations. And by generations, I mean literal offspring and then more offspring and more offspring and more offspring to get the idea of numbers associated with individualized things, items um, out of our brains. They would be the opposite. If you taught it to them, then they would have to invent words and those words would have to be communicated and people would have to agree and it would be this whole thing. So you get this, this, I, this path, you get on this path and you can't get off of it. It is, I mean, that's the, the invention of modernity to me is really interesting for that exact reason. We're like, who's to say when well, my favorite medieval people is Charlemagne and his court um, invented something kind of interesting um, punctuation, like capital letters, spaces, and commas periods like capital letters for proper nouns invented by the franks in the 800s and we didn't have anything no leaps after that for years they're matching expression to different kinds of symbols in a different way but it's still the same type of abstraction it's 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 taking a communication or a way of keeping track of people of ideas and it's placing it in a way that can be universally understood or interpreted by people who are familiar with the system that you're using sure so I think that the takeaway from this episode is if I have what I learned is that if you're ever committing fraud, just go back and throw in about 20 or 30 more ones. Can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, th- well, that's that's my advice. I plan to use it. Uh, so IRS, please do not audit me, but sure. I uh, I will not be filing taxes this year. I need about a year to work on this. Yeah. Um, a lot of ones and twos. Do that for your fantasy football rosters as well. Um, you might have a big trade coming. We're going to find out. Let's take, take it to clean. Yeah, I guess we'll see about that. Can't do any worse than I'm doing right now. That's factual. Factual.